today I would like to say a few things about the process of deconstruction and then offer actually just a little preview of a four session class that begins January 23rd that uh, Vanessa just mentioned. Uh, and it's fine to, if you'd like to put your uh, name and email, it's actually helpful to have name and email in the chat if you're interested in being on the e-group list that gets, you know, gives you like a, here's the next session and here's what the class is about, blah, blah, blah. You can do that anytime during the service. So the, the class is called, uh, like Vanessa said, uh, Reorienting Faith. And it's meant to be helpful for those of us in the process of what? Reconsidering, rethinking versions of Christianity that no longer work for us, or maybe we're newer to faith and there's things that we know that some Christians believe and we wonder what is that, you know, that's, uh, that's what the class is for. So deconstruction um, is a term that's gained a lot of traction in recent years. It's the most, I'd say most common term for this process that I want to address a little bit. Um, refers to taking things apart so you can examine the foundations. And then if you choose build back better or build something else um, in so many realms of learning, uh, we begin by um, accepting a, like a settled orientation, usually that we receive from some trusted authority. And then new experience, new data leads us into a time of disorientation. And then eventually we arrive at a new settled orientation that later on is adjusted in turn. So it's just like an ongoing learning process in some sense. Um, we think tend to think of religious deconstruction as a very modern phenomenon, uh, but but it's really age old. Uh, I've been reading a scholarly book um, on Jesus and Hillel, who uh, it, if you bought it, it would cost like one hundred and fifty dollars. That's why you know it's a scholarly book. I got it from the library. Um, and it's about uh, two leading figures from the same era, Jesus and Hillel. They were both operating in ancient Judaism during the years leading up to the destruction of the temple. So uh, it was a big transition uh, um, phase in Israel's history. Jesus, we, we know about, um, but Hillel uh, is a, is a in some ways, an equally significant figure from that time. They were contemporaries. Hillel died before Jesus made his mark, before he was doing public, um, public teaching. So it's likely Jesus was influenced by Hillel and not uh, vice versa. Um, information about Jesus may be more historically reliable because his teachings were written down um, sooner than is the case with Hillel. So for Jesus, it'd be like, a matter of decades before the first of his uh, at least teachings ascribed to him were um, available in written form compared to like 200 years later for Hillel. But both were very important figures. Uh, Jesus, obviously the founder of what became later known as Christianity. And Hillel, Hillel now would be like the most quoted rabbi of what became uh, rabbinic Judaism with its major branches, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Restorationist. Our host congregation, Temple Beth Emmet, is a Reform congregation. It's part of a broad tradition known as rabbinic Judaism. Actually, I'm like two blocks away from the Hillel Center on the University of Michigan 
campus, which is a, a synagogue and, um, and student center for Jewish students. But here's the thing uh, for our topic today, this book, Hillel and Jesus, by um, the author's last names are Charles Worth and Johns, describes Israel during the time of Hillel and Jesus as in a great transition marked by a religious identity crisis one that at least rivals the identity crisis of American Christianity today. So Hillel and Jesus were teaching in the context of two major uh, trends in Israel. On the one hand, it was a time of greater standardization and definition. Uh, the first like written down liturgies that are used in synagogue worship appeared during this time. Before that, actually spontaneous prayer was preferred to written prayer. Uh, by many. Uh, the, the list of writings that came to be considered as sacred, like set apart, special, um, out of like a whole group of, of writings from that period, like the normative writings, aka scripture, the, the list of those writings was beginning to congeal in that period. Um, you could call this trend toward greater, uh, a trend toward greater uh, rigidity. It was called the age of standardization within this big period of transition that spanned a couple of hundred years. This um, actually this greater standardization trend was a response to several factors, but one of them looks very much like widespread deconstruction of the faith of ancient Israel. So the temple, which was a great unifying force in Israel, was widely regarded in that time by many as corrupt. Uh, the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls refused to uh, worship in the temple as a protest. Jesus uh, famously performed a kind of a prophetic protest against temple corruption, it seems. We don't know exactly what he was addressing, even while he and his worshipers, um, fellow um, disciples, uh, worshiped in the temple. So a lot of the worship of the early church in the book of Acts is centered around the temple. So they don't seem to have been like anti-temple. Maybe the most colorful and telling sign of deconstruction, I, I just learned about it in this uh, book I've been reading, had to do with a practice called epispasm. Epispasm or circumcision reversal surgery. You heard that right. So here's how my Hillel and Jesus uh, book uh, describes this period um, and this practice of epispasm. Many Jewish males were embarrassed by the traditions that had galvanized society and defined their fathers and grandfathers. Some, perhaps many, underwent epispasm and removed the mark of circumcision. So Paul actually refers to epispasm in 1 Corinthians 7.18, although the language in most translations is kind of like genteel. But if you look at the David Bentley Hart translation, which is more um, close to the literal Greek, um, and in this case, much more graphic, it says, uh, let no one who was circumcised when he was called have it covered over by stretching. And then in the footnote, uh, David Bentley Hart says, a, a painful operation. This is he describing the Greek word epispasm. Um, a painful operation undergone by some Hellenized Jews, and virtually 
all Jews in Israel were deeply influenced by Greek culture uh, who wanted to hide their circumcision, which was apparently regarded as an unseemly form of self-exposure uh, so that they could participate in nude athletic contests, contests, public exercise, and public bathing. Remember, Jerusalem and Israel in general was a major cosmopolitan center with Roman, Greek, Persian influences. The story of the, of the diviners coming to visit Jesus is an example of that um, cosmopolitan uh, quality of that area at the time. Um, so the people of Judah in the south, Jerusalem, where Jerusalem was, or the northern Israel, Samaria and Galilee, they were not in some monoculture. They were exposed to many different cultures. And this was having a big impact on what was going on in their religious identity and life. Uh, widespread corruption in one's uh, own religious tradition combined with exposure to other traditions can be like deeply disorienting. That's a very tumultuous combination. Leads to very different responses. Efforts to crack down, circle the wagons, that's one response. Impose more definition. Or then, you know, serious efforts to reform uh, the tradition from within, that's another response. We're just leaving it all behind. Um, many different ways to respond to what's going on in a time like this. Now, all three responses, though, indicate a time of great disorientation, which I think is helpful to see that fundamentalism or the circle the wagons approach is a response to a time of disorientation. So the fact that many Jewish males of that period were so conflicted about their religious identity that they were undergoing a surgical procedure before the age of anesthesia to reverse circumcision, um, that's saying something. Both Hillel and Jesus, in other words, were remaining within the tradition. They weren't leaving it, but they were both advocating very significant reforms of the tradition. Both were also pretty popular with the segment of Israel's population that would most likely have been engaged with something like deconstruction. So this is an ancient, not just a modern phenomenon. When our, when our sense of history is short-sighted, everything feels like unprecedented, and that only makes it scarier. So I, I found this uh, scholarship that I've been reading kind of consoling. Back to the present. Um, Living in a time of such intense religious identity conflict or tumult is both exciting, um, depending on your personality, and, and challenging, and at the same time. I think many of us experience that, that difference. We, we feel the challenge part in different ways. You know, given my age, my gender, my demographic, my job title, one might associate me with some of the most toxic things going on in the world today. Uh, you know, so much that passes for Christianity is actually fueling the rise of white supremacy, fueling efforts to control women, rise of authoritarianism, threats to democracy, impeding efforts to deal with climate change, mistreatment of minorities. I mean, that's the really challenging part of my religious identity. But it's also exciting to be part of the change, to be part of reforming, reformulating something as important as a religious tradition. 
So one last thing before that brief uh, class preview, uh, a term like deconstruction, I think really expresses how jarring it can feel to lose your bearings when a previously held belief system proves inadequate or as significant aspects of that belief system prove inadequate or even harmful. I know, I know the word uh, trauma can easily be trivialized. Uh, discomfort isn't trauma, distress isn't trauma. Trauma is a response to a, a serious injury. Still, uh, religious trauma is a real thing. I, I remember the first time I entered a worship space that reminded me of a church experience that was very painful for me. And just because of the physical cues of that space, I mean, the chairs, the layout, the carpeting, the music, my body was protesting. I mean, I was getting lightheaded, I was getting sweaty palms. It's like, I gotta get out of here. I actually got up in the middle of it and went out into the lobby and walked around and there were like five or six other people with the same symptoms I had. It was like weird. Um, my experience of religious trauma is pretty mild compared to many, but even that little experience gave me a sober appreciation for the phenomenon. That's why I wanted to offer a little preview today of the material that we'll cover over uh, uh, four sessions in this class. So you, you could decide for yourself, you know, what if anything might be helpful to you. Um, one thing I wanna stress is that it's, it's really more like four distinct offerings than a class. Um, so I hope everyone feels free to just dip in for the topic that interests you and uh, that maybe you feel motivated or ready to engage. Now going through deconstruction or disorientation, as another writer calls it, to uh, you know try to find some new construction or new orientation, you know, it's just it's not some smooth linear process. Uh, step one, step two, step three. It's more like having like a tangled, knotted up ball of yarn or string or what ear pods that preceded air pods with the wires. You pull the knotted mess out of your backpack. You feel defeated at first, but then you notice one little loop that looks loose. And then you, you learn to pull it gently because if you pull too hard in the wrong place, you just tighten up the whole thing. So you loosen a little here and that opens up another spot that you can loosen and, and hope surges that you can untangle this mess. No two tangled balls of yarn or string or knotted up ear pods are alike. It's like um, there's no Rubik cube, no two Rubik cubes that are randomly disorganized waiting to be solved are alike. So I can't just watch you solve your Rubik's cube and then follow you step by step since mine is in a different configuration than yours because it's a random thing. You, you can give me some tips if you've know how to solve a Rubik's cube and you've done it several times, but, but I have to figure it out for myself. And at best, the tips can kind of help me with my own process. So I picked out uh, four topics for this uh, four class session. I, I credit Fayonette who comes to our Tuesday tea time. Uh, Fayonette has sensitized me to four as a sacred number because I was kind of uh, stuck on three. So I'm looking for uh, fours these days, you know, what four topics, not 12, not seven, not three, but four. 
north, south, east, west, up, down, left, right. Maybe four is a good number for getting our bearings, the four corners of the earth. I don't know. Session one, then. Here's the quick preview. Um, that starts January 23rd after um, our meet and greet time. We're going to uh, review four different roadmaps that have been offered to orient people in the process of deconstruction. So Richard Rohr, whom uh, many have heard of, has a simple one, first half of life, second half of life. Uh, Brian McLaren has another, and he synthesizes a whole bunch of them, actually. His is uh, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Simplicity, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. I've already mentioned the orientation, disorientation, new orientation um, roadmap. Phyllis Tickle offers um, kind of a historical roadmap. Her idea is that every 500 years, there's major religious traditions, including Christianity, seem to go through a major reset. And, and every she calls it an every 500 year rummage sale. I think the idea is that if you're taking things to a rummage sale or a garage sale, the first thing you do is you rummage around in your attic and your basement, seeing what you, you know, isn't useful to you and you want to get rid of it, but you don't want to just throw it away. So you take it to the rummage sale. I think that was the tradition of people bringing crappy things to their church and donating them to the church. I don't know, whatever. So that's the, that's the um, first session, just some different roadmaps that you can use. And in, in, if you might find one that resonates with you, that kind of, kind of helps you to situate yourself. Where am I like right now? Like when you go to the mall back when that was a thing, you know, uh, shopping malls are always kind of like weirdly configured. It's hard to know, at least for people like me, how to get from here to there. So you go to the, you go to the map and you look for the, you are here. Like that's the first point of orientation. Where am I now? Some of these roadmaps can help give us that um, initial orientation. Second session is uh, in February and it's a, we're going to talk about how the hell doctrine developed. The, the doctrine of hell as it's presented in um, modern Western or like European Christianity. So Catholics, Protestants, especially evangelical or conservative Christians define hell as an afterlife of eternal conscious torment for those who are, for one reason or another, kept out of the presence of God. Um, in fact, this notion comes relatively late in church history. And, but man, does it wrap up the psychological pressure. And that pressure is often used to control people in different religious systems. Um, but Paul, who's the author of roughly a third of the New, New Testament, says nothing about hell. There's um, a very prominent early theologian called the Church Father, um, born in 184 AD, origin of Alexandria. Well, he taught universal uh, salvation. So, um, you know, lots of English translations put the word hell in Jesus' mouth on, on seven discrete occasions. And in each case, the original word in the Greek is either Hades, a very ill-defined uh, state after death. It doesn't even necessarily imply punishment 
um, not the same as hell, or Gehenna, an actual location outside of Jerusalem at that time, um, used as like a smoldering landfill. So it's clearly a metaphor, and it's not one that fits well with permanence or concept like eternal um, conscious torment. So the context of these uh, sayings that are in the Gospels is, is always like warnings to leaders who are abusing their powers. It's a very different context than, you know, a talk about hell at a Young Life weekend for junior high students. Um, so session two is on the development of that doctrine and various um, ways people have looked at that. And then session three uh, in March offers is about uh, scripture. And I think we'll just offer an older Jewish approach to sacred scripture that sees these writings as multivocal, meaning um, the various writings that constitute what we call scripture or the Bible are actually speaking with different voices, some of which are in direct conflict with each other. Um, rather than univocal, that's the idea that like uh, scripture somehow speaks with one voice. So when someone says the Bible says, they're assuming that scripture is univocal, not multivocal. Well, this is a huge difference in practice and in approach to these sacred writings. If the writers of these various writings agreed and disagreed with each other, well, then we can agree and disagree with them. It's like we're coming into a conversation, a robust conversation where there are different points of view and that being involved in that conversation helps us to understand what we think about things. So this, this idea that there is a high view of scripture compared with a low view of scripture, I don't know if you've ever heard that, that's really an invention of those who by the univocal approach to scripture rather than the multivocal approach. So that'll be our topic for the third session in March. And then the last session, session four, will be on um, religious distortions of sexuality that affected um, much of early Christianity. So the focus here isn't on LGBTQ issues uh, per se, but on sexuality and Christianity in general. And it's a look at um, a couple of things, uh, ancient Jewish concerns over sexuality, but then also how early on, as Christianity separated from Judaism, it really fell into the hands of teachers with very negative and toxic views of human sexuality, and of course, a great deal of ignorance that was around at that time. So we'll kind of look at that uh, topic together. So you, you can see with these four, um, four areas how loosening one knot might make another knot easier to loosen. So, you know, if you're up for all four topics, great, but maybe one is enough to get you going and that's all you need. And so now that I've mapped out what the four topics are, if you'd only like to just dip into one, uh, pick the one that, that looks to you like, oh, maybe if I could loosen that knot, that would really help me in my deconstruction process, well, go for it. Again, uh, just you can email me with your interest in being on this e-group, um, or you can just put your name and email in the chat and we'll grab it and channel this. So let's uh, turn it over to 
Diane, have meditation, will travel, Sanda. All right, thanks, Ken. So um, find a comfortable, upright position and either close your eyes or focus on a spot in front of you. Now take a deep breath to bring yourself into the present moment. Just noticing whatever you're experiencing right now. Notice any sensations, be they of discomfort or tension. Notice your feet on the ground, or if you're sitting, notice whatever you're sitting on. Notice your clothes against your body and the air against your skin. And now notice whatever is in your mind. Whatever thoughts are here and as best you can just observe your thoughts as they are in your mind right now. Now notice whatever you are feeling emotionally. Don't try to change it, but just notice how you're feeling. And now bring your attention to your breath. Just noticing the rise and fall of your stomach as you breathe in and as you breathe out. Notice the cool air flowing in through your nose as you inhale and the warm air as you exhale. Continue to breathe in and out. If you find your mind wandering away from your breath, simply bring it back to noticing each breath in and out as they follow one another. And now allow your awareness to expand, to encompass your breath moving in and out of your body. Bringing your awareness to your thinking and whatever you're feeling emotionally right now. Gently broaden this awareness to notice the whole experience holding everything in awareness. 
Now bring your attention back to the room. Open your eyes if they're closed. Notice what you see. Notice what you can hear. Push your feet into the ground and have a stretch. Notice yourself stretching. Welcome back.